The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. forms, but it has been said that the most beautiful pictures are those formed in the mind. The imagination can take us on incredible journeys through nature, through stories, and even to the world of pure sensation. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and broom, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's discussion covers Fantasia, Walt Disney's 1940 musical anthology, featuring works by Bach, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, and Schubert. My guest is Chris Armsby and you join us in the orchestra pit of the Pier Theatre, Great Yarmouth. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can you tell me about classical music? <laughs> Very little. Um, Terrific. It's nice. It Some is. of it's quite good. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Uh, Have you seen Fantasia before? Once, and I'm not sure when. I was trying to work this one out, actually. I... <sighs> Whether it was just after it came out on video, it was one of those films that never seemed to crop up on TV, so it was always faintly the mystery Walt Disney film. Mm. And I had a chance to watch it. I didn't think much of it. I thought it was quite boring. <laughs> so this was my second time round. And what did you think of it this time? It held my attention. Maybe I'm just more mature. <laughs> well, I saw it under very similar circumstances to you. Um, it had a major re-release in 1990. Mm. for its 50th anniversary. Um, and my mother had seen it when it was first released, or maybe when it was had one of its sporadic re-releases. Yeah. And she bought the video and watched it as a family. And it, too, struggled to interest me. Mm-hmm. Interesting, I phrase that, I blame it on the film. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I struggled to keep my interest uh, in the film. And I found it a bit too slow and a bit too... Yeah strange but watching it again now like you I was highly engaged by it yeah I was 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 surprised actually because I, I stuck the DVD in looked at the running time and saw that it was like 119 minutes and I was just kind of this is going to be a slog um, I suppose a lot of it depends on the individual bits of music that are being played um, yes. and there was, you know, there was good classical music out there, and then there's classical music that's just a bit slow and a bit boring. And unfortunately, there's the same with with Fantasia. Some of the time, if it's if the classical music that's being played is a bit slow and a bit less interesting, the whole sequence seems to drag. Um, so my interest levels kind of went up and went down at varying points, just depending on the the music more than anything. I see. Well, the film itself is effectively an anthology film comprising eight segments of eight classical pieces um, performed by the uh, Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra 
under the direction of Leopold Stokowski and introduced by Deans Taylor, who was very well known as a, a composer in his own right and also a radio presenter. He was a presenter of many sort of classical music programmes mm. and delivered sort of humorous um, lectures and programming during the intermission, um, much as we have now on Radio 3. Yes, yeah. And actually the, the style, his style of humour is massively toned down for the film. Oh, okay. Because it was, it was, he, he was writing things that were deliberately sort of light and funny, but also very informative. But here it's much straighter, apart yeah. from the bit where he joins in with the, uh, the jazz break. Oh, yes, yeah. And I, the, the, obviously he turns up, and my, my first reaction was just this sense of, oh, Walt can't be bothered to make it then. Because I kind of thought he might be the one to introduce these sections. But uh... No, he leaves it to an expert. Which I suppose makes sense when you think about it. Yes. I mean, today you would have a musicologist of some sort, the, the, the choir master bloke from BBC Two or something like that. Yes, I struggle to think of... Um, there aren't many famous classical music experts these days, are there? They'll probably get Brian Cox to do it. He was in a band. He knows about the music of the spheres. Yeah. You might as well get Peter Capaldi, he was in a band. Yeah, that's true. Or Paul McGann. Or Stephen McGann. And I noticed that I think you were watching the same... DVD that I had. Did you notice something unusual about the credits in this film? No, I don't. There aren't any. Oh, right. I suppose that's true, yeah. Um, There are no credits at the beginning or end of the film of any kind. Yeah, I guess I hadn't kind of picked up on that at all. There is a uh, caption slide at the intermission, at the halfway point. That does give the film's title and copyright note. Yes. Yeah, and that's it. And there are no actual people credited at all, apart from Disney himself. Well, <laughs> he's the guy that writes the checks. Well, and, and his, his is the name of the studio. Yeah. And this ties in with, I think, our original attitudes to the film when we saw it as children. Why it's such an unusual film and why I chose it for Cinema Limbo. This is not... A children's film. No. This film dates from a time before animated features were all fairy stories and children's entertainment. People didn't know what animated films were yet. The first Western animated feature, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, was released three years earlier. The medium was still very much in its infancy, so there was no reason to assume that there are any particular limits on it. Yeah, that's true. I suppose I've never thought about that. It, it is, yeah, the, the rules are being are still being written at the time. Isn't it? The, yeah, nobody's there to say this is... Disney himself had been inspired by um, experimental animators like Len Lai, who would paint directly onto the film itself. Oh, right. Um, in, in creating these abstract sequences and these little story vignettes. And he'd been running a series of shorts... Um, called the Silly Symphonies, mm. which were classical pieces set to animation. But those were a seven, eight minutes, one yeah. reelers. And that's the origin of this film, that um, uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice was going to be a, a sort of an expanded Silly Symphony uh, and a relaunch for Mickey Mouse because his, his popularity had been waning, so it was an opportunity to revive the character, yeah. redesign him to give him more... Um, expression and more um, vitality to his appearance because the character before that had been a kind of little bit rudimentary 
the Mickey that we recognise debuts in Fantasia. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I had, there are a few earlier Mickey Mouse cartoons that crop up on YouTube. I think there's one called Mickey's Gala Premiere. Yes, yeah, I mean, the character's been around for about a decade yeah. by this point. And they're obviously noticing. The main thing as well is it's, it's just slightly odd to watch animation that's black and white. I'm not is, used to it? that. <laughs> I mean, and it's funny to think that because really there was no reason why it had to be in black and white. No. No, you could have had a situation like... Um, uh, this is probably the first time Jerry Anderson's been mentioned next to Walt Disney, but there you go. But like Jerry Anderson was making his puppet series in colour because why wouldn't you? Colour film existed just because it wasn't currently being shown on TV in colour. And I'm I'm kind of... Mind you, colour was relatively a relatively recent thing as well, wasn't it? Well, the um, Stingray was the first British TV series made in colour. Yeah, but just in terms of... Um, in terms of anime... Colour, you know, Hollywood and stuff Oh, as I well. see. Well, there were silent films made in colour. Yeah, I suppose Gone with the Wind was colour, and that was late 30s, 39. It? Yeah. By that point, colour was the norm for big prestige productions. Mm. Wizard of Oz was the same year, of course. Yes. And you know, Snow White in thirty-seven. I think you can go. I think you can go back to at least nineteen thirty, and there were yeah. colour films being made. Yes, I suppose it was just cheaper, wasn't it, at that point? Especially yeah. if you were just making disposable little short films and things. I think with with Anderson shooting Stingray in colour in nineteen sixty-four, five years before um, colour television was standard in the UK, he had an eye on the American market. Yes, where yeah, colour TV was already perfectly commonplace. Yeah. Yeah, and I think even at that point they were talking about colour coming in in the UK, although it didn't. I think 69 was when it BBC came. BBC Two started colour in 67, 60, was and it, then yeah. November 2nd, 69, BBC One and ITV switched simultaneously. Okay, that's interesting. I, didn't, I, knew, I knew about the BBC, but I didn't actually know that ITV... It kind of makes sense with the way that the, the TV industry was run in those days, that the government would force them both to... Um, to switch on the same day. It, it was a way of just avoiding competition and yeah. just do it at the same time. It, well, who would who would have thought that? Of course, competition in the TV market is a terrible idea. <laughs> so, given that Fantasia is not a children's film, that it's mm. aimed at adults, it makes sense, therefore, that it would be presented as a uh, a concert feature. That was its working title, the concert yeah. feature. Um, so you go to the cinema, you wear your dinner jacket yeah. or your evening gown, you are presented with a programme, you take your seat, and you wait for the curtains to open. Why would there be any credits? You have your programme in front of you. That's true. It's not like you wouldn't go to see the Philharmonic you wouldn't go to see the Philadelphia Philharmonic Orchestra and expect them to hold up a series of title cards. So yes, Precisely. why would it be yeah. It's still uh, it's funny, isn't it, how these things don't register, though. I suppose sometimes I'm used to the fact that you get some films that front-load all the credits or just have, you know, and then just have a the end card or something yeah. like that. Yeah, but no, it didn't pick up. Or, or it's possible that, and I may be giving things away a little bit as well, given my comment as well about the fact that my levels of interest depended on the music that was playing. When the Ave Maria sequence started at the end... I think I may have just turned it. I don't think I let it run through to the end. I honestly can't remember. Yeah, the 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 music comes to its end. The picture fades to black. Okay. And the disc defaults to the main menu. It does, doesn't it? It's very unceremonious. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, some sort of 
the end caption there or the closing of curtains perhaps would have been appropriate yeah um, but that's the way the film ended yeah when it was first released um, so as, as I say the, the film begins with curtains opening as the uh, members of the orchestra arrive and take their seats the live action scenes were actually shot by James Wong Howe who was one of the first great cinematographers okay um, and the live action sequences filmed in colour as well of course yes yeah, um, and I have notes here. Um, it feels like a Magic Lantern show, where these silhouettes and, and washes of colour as these people arrive. It's all lit from below, and it's all shot. It's it, 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 a lot of it is from sort of uh, one camera angle, isn't it? It's a kind of long shot, and I suppose again the effect is meant to say you are sitting in the audience at a concert. So you don't get a lot of cuts to different angles, or it, it it does make the opening sequences seem a bit static at times and a bit flat. But uh, I suppose it does fit with the idea of this being a filmed performance rather than just a film. Mm. Um, Demas Taylor arrives and he explains the format mm. and that we're going to be presenting with different types of music, and that our first piece is going to be Bach's Toccata and Fugue, which Stokowski had. It was famously an organ piece that Stokowski had orchestrated for full orchestra. Yeah. And the style of that piece will be abstract. The thinking during production was that you would be sitting in uh, the, uh, the concert hall, listening to the orchestra perform, and you would be half asleep. And it sort of imagines the, the visions that might flow through your imagination, the shape of the music and images of bow strings... Yes, uh, transforming into abstract patterns. They've got some. Fra- he's got some phrase for it, hasn't he? Does he call it absolute music or total exactly. music or something? Yeah, absolute music. That's it. And I mean, it's 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 a bit little bit unfortunate because, of course, he runs through the whole speech about how you might imagine you might associate notes with certain colours or you might imagine certain things, and then of course, what you then get is a sequence of images that stops you from using your own imagination <laughs> in time to the music. So that there is that vague sense with the first segment that it immediately undercuts the film's premise. But I remember sort of, as I was sitting watching it, I was kind of wondering, you know, how do you, do I portray myself as the kind of the jovial Philistine or whatever, or do I just, you know, pretend to be terribly high? The honest answer is this first sequence bored me. Really? It's not, I didn't find it. The images aren't particularly interesting. I think when that music is played on an organ, it sounds terrific. But the orchestral version sounds a bit wimpy and a bit boring. Yeah, this this first section didn't hold my attention at all. It is relatively short. Yeah, which is um, a bonus. I think it's perhaps a concession to Stokowski of doing something that plays directly into his own work, rather than just him. Yeah. Because this is, this is a, a complete orchestration of his own. I think I read somewhere as well that certainly during the planning stages he offered to work for free. I don't know whether he subsequently did, but yes, maybe this was just a case of throwing him a bone. I don't believe, uh, I, don't, I don't recall that offer being made. No, okay. from what it was, I read it on Wikipedia, so you can oh. take it with a pinch of salt. Well, he was originally going to work on the um, Sorcerer's Apprentice short, um, but it was found to be, I think I said, so expensive that it couldn't just be <laughs> releasing it on its own. 
Uh, and the music for it was also, we'll probably get on to that, but the music for Sorcerer's Apprentice was actually recorded between midnight and three in the morning. Okay. Because uh, apparently, I got the impression that the, the strategy was that he poured coffee into all the musicians so that they'd be extra alert. Right. And I don't understand how that can how that couldn't be achieved by recording during the daytime. Yeah, having a good night's sleep, for example. Maybe there was a tension he was after. Maybe a musician's cheaper after midnight. Couldn't say. <laughs> um, the the P. I mean, given that the uh, that the and fugue is normally played on a, an organ, mm. so that immediately makes one connect to religion. It does end with sort of religious imagery, almost of these heavenly spires and arches in the sky. And as I say, I'm this piece, this this whole sequence. I don't feel I have anything very valuable to contribute to the well, whole well, the I've, first segment. Well, I've written a note: the mind of the divine. I'm, <laughs> I'm. I don't. I don't know what that refers to. Maybe I was having a stroke at the time or something. Well, possibly. Um, it's a very. It's quite profound. It's a nice. It's a nice use of language. It's mm. very evocative. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I wish I had something. I, I was sitting there trying to work out what current affairs program had used this music as a theme tune. I, it was uh, Once Upon a Time Life. Yeah, that was it. That that's what I came to came to the conclusion in the end. I thought it had been used by like World in Action or somebody like that, but they had their own. Yeah, the World in Action theme, which is amazing, mm. was apparently improvised. Oh, <laughs> it was just one guy on an electric organ, another guy on a guitar, just hammering away. Ba 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 ba. But yes, you're right, it was. It was that slightly odd... Was it a French cartoon series? Or... I, it was French produced, but it had international funding. Yeah. Yes, uh, I remember... It has the man with the beard. Yeah, that's it. It used to turn up regularly on ITV, and it, I was always frustrated when it came on because I never saw the episode with the spaceship. And that was the only one I wanted to see. The one that, uh, that ends with the destruction of the Earth. That's the one, yeah. That was, was more up my street. This title sequence for this series... That chronicles the entire development of Earth, humanity, and then the end of the world. <laughs> like, well, it's, what do you need the rest of the programme for? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Detail? You have to separate out the adverts somehow. Um, the second sequence is a group of dancers from the Nutcracker Suite. Oh, yes. Um, and the decision was taken, because it's a suite rather than a single continuous piece, that... To begin with, two of the eight dancers are left out, and the rest are oh. uh, juggled in in sequence. Um, and it's a series of images of the changing seasons in nature. Hmm. What did you think of this one? This was um, more engaging. Uh, the I think you said this when we were kind of exchanging uh, notes, emails beforehand that. The, the, lots of frolicking and I think the word frolicking will come up a lot in the course I of I wasn't even referring to the section oh right but I do yes yeah so this is fairies frolicking around and you know yes it's it's very bucolic um there is at least one point there were two points in the course of Fantasia when I sort of turned into Homer Simpson this was the first of them because there used to be an advert for Cadbury's fruit and nut chocolate, which used everyone's a fruit and nut case. I was actually thinking of that on the way here. Yeah, that was exactly it. That was number one. I'll tell you number two when we get to it. I look forward to that. So we have uh, the dance of the sugar plum fairies, will o' the wisps, and fairies in woodland. 
and the dance of flight uh, with some dewdrops as uh, what have I written here? They do. They use dewdrops on spider webs and kind of illuminate them. Oh yes. Yeah. And then the second sequence, the Chinese dance, is really racist. Yes. It where a bunch of Chinese mushrooms will have a little dance. Different times. I think, can we just say different times and move on? Well, there's a lot of racism in this film. I think a lot of it's been edited out, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Um, but um, Disney himself was known to be traditional in his mm. attitudes. Um, well, that leads on to the fantastic joke in The Simpsons, doesn't it, about the uh, guy that creates Itchy and Scratchy making his ill-received film called Nazi Superman of our superiors. <laughs> Yes, I mean, I made a, a note of this as a discussion point, but then didn't bother doing any research. <laughs> um, but it's had, there's a lot of moments in this film where you thought, hmm, it's interesting that that's in here, and a lot of other movies at the time don't do that. I suppose so. I mean, is it is it just that... Disney's unlucky in that all his stuff has survived. You know, how many, fil- how many films from 1940 are watched on a regular basis? I mean, Gone with the Wind obviously has got the... The happy plantation. Yeah, so, you know, there was, there was other stuff like that doing the rounds. And, and I, I, I'm never really sure if you just went and pulled out a random film from 1940, apart from the fact, obviously being British and watching this, there's this slight weirdness of being aware that Walt Disney was making this film while we were at war with Germany. And it's just a thing of going, oh, look what the folks on the other side of the Atlantic were up to. Yeah, they were... Yeah. They were having a lovely time. Um, but uh, it's... I don't know. I, on, I really don't know whether this is... As I say, Disney may just be unlucky that everybody was doing this. But it's Disney's one of the few people whose films are still being watched. Mm. I think it's a problem that uh, the Walt Disney Company has tried to promote its canon of animated films as being this sort of timeless, evergreen yeah. um, selection. Um, and have almost never acknowledged that they're products of their time. Some of them have dated extremely well. Yeah. Um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is, as far as I can tell, not racist at all. <laughs> Uh, it's actually rather good, yeah. I thought. Uh, it's, it's, and, it, and it looks gorgeous. And Dumbo, on the other hand... Yes, has... has, has, the... has, has and, and he's called yes, Jim he Crow. Yeah. I mean, that's just a slap in the face. Yeah. They're not in the remake. As much as I love The Jungle Book and King Louie, I occasionally worry about the ethics of King, the King Louie. It's the... Oh, look, the jazz-loving... Easygoing characters of Big Monkey, and it does, you know. But he's not—he's an orangutan rather than a gorilla. True. And they needed someone who could sing the song. Yes. And Louis Prima singing "I Want to Be Like You" is fantastic. Yeah, I mean that's—I think that's. So it's and and that's late sixties by then. So they were aware by then. Yeah. Um. I think it's one of those things that sometimes as well the, it's easier to excuse stuff if it's brilliant and King Louis singing I Want to Be Like You is 
is a real highlight of their film. Whereas something like The Song of the South, which I think is 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 in the fridge next to Walt Disney's Frozen Head at this point. Yeah. I don't think anyone acknowledges that exists anymore, really. Can you even get it on DVD? It's, no, you can't. Um, I have seen... I, I know that it's actually been released on VHS in the UK. Oh, wow. And there are copies floating around that I've seen. But it's worth noting that Uncle Remus in Song of the South is the very first live-action character in a Disney film. I suppose that's true, yeah. Even though a lot of the film is also still really racist, it did make that advance, and he won a special Oscar for that, I believe. Mm. He he was given a special Oscar. Yeah. Are we talking special in the sense that the? It was a a non-competitive. Oh, okay, fine. I thought you meant that he had his own ceremony or something in a room. No, no, the actual Oscars. Fine, Uh, good for that. I mean, Hattie McDaniel, who plays the um, friendly black servant in. Gone with the Wind, one best supporting actress yeah, at the Oscars, did, she? Yeah. but she had to get it to the venue through the back door because she oh. wasn't allowed in the front. Really? Yeah. You see, that's just. <laughs> well, it was nineteen forty. I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can talk about this for a very long time, but oh yeah, yeah. Holy well, and that's the. I'm also aware that I don't want to give the impression that the UK is any was is or was any kind of racial paradise. But yes, Hollywood racism, you could talk about it forever, couldn't you? Yeah. So the next section I believe is um some sexy fish. Yes. I don't actually they were slightly sexy. <laughs> it was um inspired by uh Arabian harems and women wearing diaphanous veils and that yes. kind of thing. And um Disney himself seems to have been rather entranced by the uh, voluptuousness of goldfish and their seductive, sinuous movement. They're, you know, (laughs) what can you say? (laughs) Each each to his own. He's a love the shape of water. Mm. And then we have some dancing thistles. Yeah, which is quite quite an energetic sequence, actually, that. But yes, yeah, I thought it was, for some reason, because it had been decades since I've last seen this. Of course, you see the thistles, and I half expected them to start doing a bagpipe jig or something. Yes. But yeah, thistles, Cossacks, that's a very energetic bit. That's good fun. And that one particularly is staged as though it's a performance, because they're against black. Mm. It's It feels like it's being um, filmed on a stage almost. Yes. I mean, I know we should probably just move past the dancing mushrooms... But they're also shot in the same way, aren't they? It's, it's, yes. it's them dancing. It's, whereas the fairies obviously are in some wooded glade. Uh, wooded glade. Yeah. And so it, keep, it does seem to keep jumping, almost as if they couldn't make up their own mind within the sequence whether this was meant to be a performance or was meant to be animated as if it was real life or something. Mm. Uh, next is the dance of the flutes, which is the forest turning from summer to autumn. Fairies turning the leaves to oh, that's red right. and gold. Yeah, yeah. The the leaves blowing from the trees and dancing with each other in the air. And then the last one is the waltz of the flowers, with winter, uh, snow and snowdrops, and fairies skating on the frozen pond, and glass snowflakes descending through the sky. Mm. I think yes. I think possibly my only thought with uh, during that sequence was that the snowflakes must have been a nightmare to animate. But mm. it took, the movie took three years to make. 
So he started it in 37, wow. No, I'm just slightly surprised. <laughs> Basically, that's what a boring job animation is. <laughs> so the next section is The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yeah. And it's the one that everyone knows. There were... Fantasia was the mystery Disney film. I think at some point, rather, because the BBC always seemed to have an in with Walt Disney, and I think their films used to crop up on TV quite... There was always one Disney cartoon on at Christmas or something like that. You're sure that wasn't Disney time? Well, there was that as well. Um, but Fantasia was the mystery film, because I don't... I, I'll have to go on BBC Genome later on and see whether I'm actually right about this, but I don't remember it ever being shown on, on TV. It has been shown on the BBC, but only relatively recently. Yeah. But the bits, The Sorcerer's Apprentice was a bit that could be snipped out of the film and shown in isolation, so I'd definitely seen that. And The Dancing Hippos was the other bit that used oh, to crop the dance of the hours later yeah on. used to crop up on TV quite a lot as well I know but yeah it's good I I've never really liked Mickey Mouse but he was quite endearing He's in this I always liked Donald Duck yeah because Mickey always seemed a goody goody little everyman twerp yeah whereas Donald was always losing his temper and starting fights and arguing with people mm. and everything always went wrong for him and he's a classic comedy yeah. character and it leans towards... Donald Duck is the closest that Disney ever got to the Warner Brothers cartoons, which were more... I was always more sort of the rabbit yeah, of Seville crazy. Than, uh, than Fantasia. But yeah, um, and Donald Duck was about as close as Disney ever got to that sort of anarchy. Mm. And there's also, as other people... As, as has been pointed out by other people before... If somebody is wearing just a shirt and no trousers, that's a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no wonder he was thrown out of the Navy. Mm. In fact, uh, Donald does appear in Fantasia 2000. Oh, okay. Um, I believe uh, there is a uh, section based on Carnival of the Animals. Oh, right. Where Donald is Noah's assistant as he's uh, gathering together all the animals for the Ark. And at one point, a couple of ducks... Right. And they are realistically drawn. <laughs> and Donald watches them going up the Duang Plank with a quizzical look on his face. Yeah. <laughs> which is, I think, rather like the, the Goofy conundrum. Oh, what, what is he? Which is, how come Goofy is a dog when Mickey has a pet dog? I, you know, I wouldn't have said Goofy was a dog. I, if, I might have said he was a bear of some description. No, he's a dog. He's got long ears. I guess. He's got a snout. Yeah. I'd never really thought about it before. But yes, yes, he must be a dog. Does Pluto have brain damage? It's probably best not how to... Come there is a, how come there's a dog that's smaller than a mouse? It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? But yeah, I was kind of surprised. I've always found Mickey Mouse a bit boring and a bit... I don't know. Bland. Bland is probably as good a word as any. As, He's as a... bland as a Chris Chibnall script. Ooh, harsh words there. <laughs> um, but he's quite—he's actually quite endearing in that. There's a bit where he kind of skips down the stairs in times of the music, and it's actually quite. Uh, this is such a prissy word. Is it's enchanting? <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be. Yeah, exactly. But it—it it, it, it actually—it's—it's it's, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. 
is perhaps the you can see why Walt Disney looked at it and went, oh, this has got potential. Yeah. Um, the, 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 of the three segments so far, it's, it's by far and away the most successful. Because it's a story, yeah. because it was a story before it became a piece of music, so there's a coherent narrative onto which mm. the images can latch. And because um, Mickey starts as this downtrodden servant who then gets up to all sorts of mischief yeah. before everything has resolved at the end. So he's got a little story arc of his yeah. own. And he's not just the the goody goody type. Yes. And it's a story and as well, it's a story that they can tell without having to use any language. So yeah, it it but it is more a ballet, I suppose, in a weird sort of way, isn't it? Um Yeah. But no it I, 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 thought it was great <laughs> I mean you could all it's maybe the only one of the segments that you could show without the music yes yeah because it is that story I mean other parts of the film do work as as a tableau or um, to sort of impressive sequences in their own right but this is the one that works as a a little tale um, it starts with the Sorcerer himself, who was named hilariously Yen Sid. Yen Sid? Oh, wait. yes, I yes. see. Think about it, listener. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, uh, conjuring a butterfly using his big book of sorcery. And then he goes off to bed straight away, yeah. leaving Mickey to tie up, tidy up. And he leaves his glowing hat behind. Mm. Um, and let's note that the, the shadows in this are very much like expressionism. These are the deep shadows and the the uh, the design of the uh, the environment is very much reminiscent of some German silent film. It's I suppose it's odd in a way, isn't it? Because I've never really thought about the process of making an animated film. I mean, I'm assuming that you don't have a cinematographer in the conventional sense, that you don't have somebody that sets up the lighting and says, well, yeah, we're putting the camera here and it will be this sort of length. Presumably that just for all these segments directed by different people. Yes, they were. Yeah. Which is, on a production level, quite useful because Mm. it means that all the different elements can be produced simultaneously. Because it is an anthology film, ultimately. Yeah. Rather like with, say, Black Mirror, you can have eight episodes in a series because you can shoot them all at once. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. You're not having to swap actors or anything like that. Are you? No, no, it, it it looks it looks really nice. As I say, this is this this is the point when you suddenly understand. I guess I can understand why they wanted eight different segments that you didn't. But I I do wonder if couldn't they have? I would have found it slightly more interesting at times if they could have found eight segments that each told a story. Um, because again, I think the other sequence that for me works very well is Night on Bear Mountain, which again pretty much kind of tells an ordered story. Um, and maybe I'm just not a fan of abstractism. <laughs> well, I'll have to make you watch some abstract films. Oh, God, not the Salvador Dali one with the hands. <laughs> no, that's far too easy. Oh, okay. I want to make you suffer. Um, so he he doesn't want to do all this work, so he brings yeah. the broom to life. And the broom sprouts arms and um, picks up the buckets to 
load water from the well into somewhere else because that's what he has to do. Yeah. And um, as this is carrying on, Mickey's of, and Mickey starts of conducting as yeah. he sits down and kind of conducting the music almost within the scene. And he dozes off and dreams of conducting the power of nature and standing on a cliff top and conducting the yeah. the crashing waves and the stars across the sky. And it looks absolutely yeah, it looks... spectacular. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a really beautifully uh, animated sequence. And my note is that he dreams that he's Doctor Strange. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. You may, well now that and now that Disney own Marvel. Maybe they can do the Disney Avengers crossover we're all waiting for. I have no idea who you cast as the Hulk. Donald Duck. Because he, you don't like him when he gets angry. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that there is fan art of the, the various Disney characters as the Avengers. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it for a minute, yeah. Mickey would have to be Captain America. Yes, yeah. If well, Don, Donald, or, Donald is the Hulk. Although if we've cast Mickey as Doctor Strange, then, hmm. Scrooge McDuck would have to be Iron Man, surely. Yes, that makes rich. sense because he's got the money. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what would Goofy be? That's what I was just trying to work out. Um, Ant Man, possibly. Yeah, he's yeah, the funny one. Yeah, the comic relief. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. Mini. Hang on, we've put Doctor Strange in as does. If we put Mickey Mouse in as Doctor Strange, does that make Minnie Mouse the ancient one? No, it makes her Rachel McAdams. I remember how she was in that movie. Yes. Well, actually, <laughs> if if you make Mickey Iron Man, then Minnie yeah, he is can be Pepper Potts. Yeah, makes that makes more sense. So who's Captain America then? Hmm. Who else is? I'm, I'm struggling now to think of famous King Louie. <laughs> it's, it's characters from the early shorts have got Pluto in there somewhere. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, yes. Loki. Well, listener, why not write it with your, with your ideas? <laughs> send, your, send your postcards to to anyone but us. Yeah, you've got my Twitter address. You know where to send them. Um, Mickey wakes up and the room has all... been working so hard that the place is now flooded. And as he, he tries to stop, he tries to stop the broom. The broom just tramples straight over him. So he picks up an axe and commits murder. Yes. And apparently, in an earlier version of that scene, you actually see Mickey chop the the broom up on camera rather than in, in yeah. shadow. The funny thing was, I, I think if you'd asked me, I would have said I remembered seeing him chopping uh, chopping them up. But no, it's all done safely off screen, so as not to upset any watching kiddies. Um, but yeah, this is the film in which Mickey Mouse commits murder. I suppose so. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a sentient broom at this point, isn't it? So, yeah. I'm kind of surprised, actually, given that this is feels like a classic, classic sort of like AI thing, where you, somebody would program a story where somebody programs an AI to just keep doing the same thing over and over again with terrible results. And there must be a science fiction book out there called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. I've just never come across it. <laughs> well, because of the magic, yes. all the shards of the broom come to life, and they turn into brooms. And they've all got buckets of their own. Yeah. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And they all start uh, slapping water all over the place. And it becomes more abstract then as well, mm. where you have these hundreds of brooms emptying hundreds of buckets into a, into the room. And 
just enormous depths of water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, close shots of them marching by the camera where the camera would be. Yes. Or uh, and, it be- and it does become more abstract, as though it's turning into a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, and soon Mickey's trying to bail the water out of the window until even the window is underwater. Yes. Until finally, the sorcerer appears, having presumably been woken yes, up when yeah. his bed was floating away. Presumably waking up to go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he clears the water, it magically evaporates, the brooms disappear, and Mickey very sheepishly offers the hat back. Yeah. Which he grabs out of his hand with his eyebrow cocked apparently in the way that Disney would when, oh, right. when he was displeased by something and he hands him back to the, hands him back the broom and starts to sort of slope away looks back with a little smile on his face frown frown down at Mickey so he turns and walks away and then the, the sorcerer smiling slightly to himself smashes Mickey on the arse yes. <laughs> yeah the broom do, 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 do. Uh, at which point Mickey appears in the concert oh, that's hall. Right. Yes, he does, doesn't and, he? And uh, thanks uh, Maestro Stokowski for his work. Yes, conducting all those musicians at 3 a.m. in the morning or whatever it was. So I think that's maybe the earliest example of live action and animation together. Yeah, and because it's done in silhouette, it's much easier mm. to cheat. Yeah, because it, we have that recurring image of Stokowski standing in the centre at, at the beginning and the end of the sequence. In fact, it's shot in a very... I'm struggling to find the right, right way to phrase it. It's, it's framed in the same way that the BBC would kind of phrase actors when they were trying to do CSO shots. And I wonder whether there was maybe more of an intention originally to have him interacting with the animation more. And it was just technically difficult or expensive. Or there, is, there is a compositing... <clears throat> All the yeah. way through. Um, at the end of the Takata and Fugue sequence, you have um, Stokowski against this huge yes, rising so sun. Admittedly, if I've been paying more attention at the end of that sequence, I might have noticed it. But this this is the only time he actually interacts yeah. because Mickey, as a character, mm. sort of comes into the. Yeah. Um, and the whole sequence reminded me of the various attempts that other studios did of doing similar projects, of having. Um, using classical music combined with animation because mm. the obvious one is what's opera doc oh yes yeah well, well that must have been 40s I guess I can't because I think the 40s were the heyday of the Warner Brothers cartoons weren't they uh, well there was a Warner Brothers version called a corny concerto in 43 oh right which even has Elmer Fudd parodying Deans Taylor hmm um and as late as 1976, Bruno Borsetto, who you may remember was the producer of the Mr. Rossi cartoons, oh, okay. yeah. um, produced a, a full-length parody of Fantasia called Allegro Non Troppo. You certainly had two, because the, the, you've got What's Up for a Dog and you've got The Rabbit of Seville are the two. And Corny Concetto makes three. Yeah, yeah. Corny Concetto is very specifically parodying Fantasia. I think the other two are. Having doing, guess, doing a similar idea but doing it in their yeah, own way. I guess the frog one doesn't. One froggy evening doesn't count, sadly. It's not really classical music, unfortunately. No, it's jazz and that's not allowed. Um, they did, in Fantasia 2000, one of the pieces is um, Rhapsody in Blue. Yes, yeah. 
which is done in the style of Al Hirschfeld's uh, caricatures. That's interesting. To make it um, contemporary for the year 2000. But it's like, jazz is now accepted 70 years later. Yes. Um, What would they be doing now? Um, They'd be doing rock and roll. Be doing, yeah, um, probably can't touch this or something. (laughs) Yeah, they could do um, uh, a quick one while he's away, the the Who's first rock opera. Yeah, let's do Tommy or something, yeah. Well, actually, that's an interesting point. Ken Russell doing Fantasia. There would be a lot of nuns, I guess. Ken Russell did a lot of, a number at least, of um, short films for television about the lives of the composers. Yes, he did, didn't he? Elgar, Sibelius, Mahler. Yeah, because I'm sure there's a joke, I'm sure it's Monty Python, there's a joke where somebody runs in and kind of bodily seizes a young woman and then it cuts to an announcer going, that was a scene from Ken Russell's The Life of Elgar. They're not quite like that. I mean, uh, the Sibelius the one, I think, is almost sedate. Um, but he did go on to make films like Listomania, which oh, is like list as the first rock star hmm. so the idea that he would combine classical music with imaginative hallucinatory imagery the way he does in Tommy yeah. um, he'd have been a perfect fit to do something similar hmm. he'd, have, he'd have bitten Disney's hand off well yes yeah. but given that he did the devil's um, unlikely that he would have been allowed to work on a Disney film <laughs> under very very carefully controlled circumstances yeah oh he'd have hated that well yeah no exactly it would have just been uh, constant phone calls down to the, the set wouldn't it with Ken Russell going and going oh we're just shooting a little bit off set as enormous candles are being delivered and nuns have it it's not all about masturbating nuns in his films I mean that's the only reference you're going to get to that and then podcast about Fantasia. Yeah, this is true. Um, during the next introduction, some tubular bells uh, get knocked over. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, just a bit of hilarious, unscripted humour. Um, and the final uh, piece for the first section of the film is um, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, mm. which is also the only piece by a composer who was alive at the time. Yes, I, I was kind of surprised. It's that slightly weird thing of watching something on DVD that was made Oh, I can't do maths. Let's say 70 years ago. Um, 80. I think I was close. Um, I hadn't realised that the Rise of Spring was still in copyright. Yeah. With Disney made that they actually had to licence it, which just kind of blows my mind slightly. Uh, I realise that time makes fools of us all. But it, it is just that slightly weird thing of, of as you say, yes, you know. One forgets that classical music is a style, not a period. Mm. There are classical composers live today. Michael Nyman's a classical composer. Well, it does. And it's, it's an odd introduction as well, isn't it? Because uh, Deems Taylor really lays into the dinosaurs. <laughs> yes, he really hates dinosaurs. He really has a he's go a at how stupid they are. Look at these idiots. Yeah, he's really... I, st- I, I was kind of sitting there watching you go, what's your problem? Did, did a dinosaur kill your parents? Or something? Mother left his father for a dinosaur. Mm. Well, that's true. Um, but the Rite of Spring, when it was first performed in concert, was quite controversial. Yeah. It was a very uh, 
original avant-garde piece intended to be symbolic of tribal dances and sacrifices. Um, but instead, for the film, it's about the trials of life. Yes. The creation of the earth and prehistoric animals up to the extinction of the dinosaurs. It's, as I say, it's that fascinating thing of seeing a moment caught in time. Because I think he actually talks about the fact that nobody knows why the dinosaurs went extinct. No. And it's just that thing of sitting there going, ah, I know something you don't know. Well, the suggestion is that there was some sort of drought. Yes. Which, that's that's pretty close to the accepted reason now. But the reason for the drought is because uh, the Earth was hit by an asteroid and caused nuclear winters and all the plants died. I'm pretty sure I can remember, as a kid, reading a book about the dinosaurs and the book confidently asserting that the reason dinosaurs died out were because they were too stupid and clever mammals ate all their eggs. Uh, It was probably written by Demas Taylor, actually, thinking about it. I mean, that's only like a paragraph away from saying the dinosaurs died out because they didn't accept Jesus Christ. Pretty much, yeah. In fact, actually, that's the, the one fact, having, as I say, done my usual research of reading the relevant Wikipedia article, they do say that this segment holds off from linking human beings to evolution because it gets to the dinosaurs and then stops, doesn't it? But it does, it does specifically refer to evolution mm. and it portrays evolution. Yes, but just not for people. Not for human beings, but for other animals. Yeah. So there's kind of a very casual acceptance mm. of evolution as being, well, yeah, this is scientific fact. And we'll show it as such, and we're not treating it as though it's in any way controversial. No, that's right. Which, for the late 30s, I found quite interesting. Yeah, I can't remember when the Scopes monkey trial was, and I'm not going to waste time looking it up. I just remember my disappointment. I just remember my disappointment of discovering that the Scopes monkey trial wasn't actually the trial of a monkey. I yeah, I mean it's it is always disappointing to find out that a monkey was not put in court. Yeah, it would have. I'd like to imagine it would have been like that Bilko episode where they accidentally induct a monkey into the army. The Scopes monkey trial was in 1925. Okay, so that's what that's over, over a decade yeah, beforehand. Yeah. It's still relatively new, though. I was going to say, that if, if you assume that they started making this in 37, that's close enough to uh, to be controversial, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's like today having, I don't know, a transgender conductor or something. Mm. Who'd have thought it? Yeah. Um, the sequence does start with the black of space and then a distant mm. swirl. And the, I was uh, reading about this, the way special effects were used in the production. They actually built a model Earth and hmm. filmed it against black, and that was rotoscoped. Okay. I'm occasionally surprised, and this is, a, again, a, a particularly dim observation, but the amount of trouble they went to, to produce. Just draw it. Yeah, but but you, it's, it's hard to draw things to get them look realistic I without actually so. examining them in real life, in the way that um, animators would uh, study human anatomy. Mm. To get things to look real, yes. to, get, to get physical movement to look real, the bubbling lava was done by making some lava, like porridge and coffee, and and then piping air through it. I guess so. It just feels like once you've done, once you've made a model Earth and filmed it, you've done half the work anyway. It just it seems like a, an awful lot of effort to go to. But then this film was quite expensive by the 1940 standards, wasn't it? Oh yes, it was enormously expensive. Yeah. 
so we uh, have the sequence of there's actually a piece that sat, uh, in the music that sounds almost like the theme from Jaws there is do, yes do, I noticed do, that do, 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 do. yeah I was I was kind of surprised by that <laughs> which sort of made me think of it being like the birth of modern film music mm. and there's a lot of John Williams scores but his uh, his Star Wars material particularly does refer back to um Music of the 1930s in films like the Corngold's oh, uh, music for the Adventures of Robin Hood is referenced quite strongly in Star Wars and um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Makes sense. Um, and I do like how the the bursting bubbles and lava. Oh yes, the, the, yeah. There's a similar bit in the uh, the bit with all the fairies. I've managed to forget what piece of classical music. The Nutcracker. The Nutcracker Suite, where they kind of swoop, the fairies are swooping, and it's time to. An oboe or something like mm. that. Yeah, that's sort of getting to really to the heart of the idea of matching music and image. Yes, well, it's a it, it's kind of the reverse of the thing that they used to do in Tom and Jerry cartoons, where you know Jerry would start laughing, it would be played on the violin, and yet Tom would shout with a human voice. It's yeah, <laughs> and no matter how many times I jump on my cat's tail. He just meows. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, ga- it's very disappointing. And not at all hilarious. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> Depends which cat it is. But and yeah, yeah, you run one cat over with a garden roller, <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly the police are after yeah. you. Um, uh, have lava pouring into the mm. sea. It's raging seas and winds. Meanwhile, in the ocean, there are amoeba. Yeah. And then other things. And then it goes to the early plants, and we have clouds of gas away, but we're seeing you know, billions of years mm. going through uh, a fish eaten by a jellyfish and then it evolves towards the land and then suddenly we've got dinosaurs on the beach Yes, and they're all having a lovely holiday that's right because this is the other thing that, that uh, I'd nearly called him Dennis Taylor it's not Demas Taylor um, talks about is the fact that all he comes up with the, the immortal line what is it all dinosaurs were planted except for the ones that Ate meat or something like it's one of these really insightful observations, and yeah, it's all very very bucolic, and the the dinosaurs all look very nice and very happy, except obviously for the T Rex, which is evil. Well, Disney himself characterised the T Rex as being the local bully. Okay, yeah, makes sense. So all the other dinosaurs are having a lovely time, um, except for. I think there's a pterodactyl that's grabbed by a plesiosaur. Yes, something like that. And one thing that I noticed was that one flying dinosaur has, appears to have feathers. Interesting. Which, I missed that. Which predates... Oh, that would be Archaeopteryx. Arche- Archaeopteryx, yeah, yeah. I think that, I know the one you mean. I think that's pretty much meant to be Archaeopteryx, yeah. Because that uh, predates, by some margin, current thinking that dinosaurs did have feathers and may have been yes. the evolutionary forebears of birds but Archaeopteryx was always because there's at some point and this is this is the point where I reveal how little I paid attention at university Um, I can't remember when they found the Archaeopteryx fossil or indeed where they found it they just but I think it it was quite well known by 1940 and yeah they but as you say I don't think they particularly thought at that time that all dinosaurs had feathers it was just that Archaeopteryx was well obviously this is an old bird hmm. um, and there are various young dinosaurs as well hmm. and they're very obviously cute 
yes. funny animated animals with their little antics, which I think contrasts quite poorly with the way the adults are portrayed as being real animals. Mm. And then you've got the funny little cute animals. Yeah, yeah, it's strange, isn't it? The, the baby animals have been kind of Disneyfied. Yeah. But yeah. And the T-Rex appears and they all flee in terror. And there's a fight with a Stegosaurus, even though there's like a hundred million years between them. That's fine, yeah. <laughs> um, no blood when the Stegosaurus no. gets killed. Unsurprised. Which is odd, given that, as you were saying, this is meant to be a film for, for adults. Yeah. It's quite... Um, it's not shocking. <laughs> well, blood, red blood... In a film at the time, would have been quite shocking. Would that have been the Hayes? Because this was the days of the Hayes Code, I yeah. guess, was it? That would have, even in a natural history context, that would have been questioned. Yeah. Oh, it reminds me of um, when I saw March of the Penguins. And there's a sequence in that where there's an adorable little baby penguin wandering around. And a seagull or something flies down and basically starts pecking at it and the camera kind of deliberately wanders off and finds something more interesting to look at yeah. and it's it's just it's it's an interesting comparison to the way that the David Attenborough documentaries would have covered what happened to the baby penguin in unflinching detail yeah. and in March of the Penguins they just no no it's fine they all went off and they had a lovely time later whatever happened to integrity well but uh, the Stegosaurus loses. Yes. And we transition to the, the final sequence where there's uh, a drought. The dinosaurs are marching across a dust bowl. And there's, they're dropping one yeah, by they're one. Yeah, they're all dying. The, the T-Rex falls over. Yes, he doesn't make it. And uh, finally time passes. There's an earthquake. And sea and wind come in, and covering everyone. the sand, turning it into an ocean. As the sun goes into eclipse. Oh, that's right, yes. And now there will be a short intermission. And it is on on the DVD, obviously, it is a very short intermission. Mm. So, um, have you been? Oh, yeah. Well, then, you know, Fine, yeah, can't good. complain. Good, good. What did you have for lunch? A, sad, a couple of sandwiches. All oh, right. Yeah, I went to Subway, had a tuna sweet corn sandwich, it's very nice. Very busy there. I've never been to one where I had to wait to have a seat. Hmm. Oh, it's unusual. Yeah. <laughs> I've become a pescatarian recently, so um, my uh, my diet's changed a bit. That's. Uh, I don't no eat no meat, but fish is okay. Yeah. Yep. I don't eat land meat, as I call right. it, um, which I've actually found to be really easy. Yeah. Well, I wonder what about sausage that fell in the sea. Well, the sausage came from yeah, a land animal, so... Also, a sausage that fell in the sea looks like a turd. <laughs> so, also, it fell in the sea. <laughs> yeah, it's probably best not to... No, it's, it, it is one of those... And, I, I th- like everybody else, I've been trying to eat slightly less meat as well. You know, it seems... It's my moral duty, and... It's good for health, slightly as well as for the environment. Uh, I, st- I still find animals delicious, mm. and I have absolutely... No, no ethical problems eating bacon. I just think bacon is quite bad for you. Yeah, it's quite bad for you. It's quite bad for the environment. Um, it is that vague sense that, you know, 
maybe just everybody needs to be slight, eating slightly fewer animals and um, yeah, and more fish. Yeah, yeah, they've got it coming. Yeah, I mean, as Mark Kermode says, if they can't be bothered evolving legs, that's their own problem. Um, yeah, so they've uh, made one or two changes, although yeah. um, it hasn't stopped us wearing almost identical shirts today. Well, it, it's summer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Out come the bright colours. So, the second half of the film um, starts with the uh, composers returning to the stage. And uh, having a little jazz jam. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's quite a nice little sequence. You know, I, I whether it was script, presumably it was scripted, um, or whether somebody just thought it was three in the morning and somebody thought this will be a fun idea. Who knows? Well, most of the, the, the music for Sorcerer's Apprentice is recorded in the middle of the night, but I think the the rest of it and the live action filming yeah. was presumably done during business the hours. More sensible time. Um, but it is a nice little thing, and they just have a, a conscious acknowledgement of hmm. changes in music. Yeah. And even Deems Taylor gets a bit into it. Oh, yeah. And then covers his mouth with his hand because he realises he's been picked up by the microphone. Yes. And then there's laughter from the imaginary audience, which is. No, I think it's the other musicians. Oh, okay, that way. There were a couple of points when I wasn't sure whether there was meant to, you, you were meant to imagine that you were watching with an audience but of course having said that you would have been watching it in a cinema anyway yeah. so there wouldn't have been an imaginary audience no but uh, he has, there's a little segment where he introduces the soundtrack yes um, and explains the concept of sound on film and how each instrument creates a different shape yeah and is effectively introducing the audience to the idea of the oscilloscope I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, that, that does look sort of rotoscope. Presumably that's just an oscilloscope and that somebody's drawn all over the top of it. It's, um, it's, it's an odd idea, I mm. think. It's, it feels a bit out of step with the rest of the film. It feels like it's sort of a, a segment left over from something else. Yeah, possibly. It certainly doesn't fit with the idea of the, the, the animated symphonies and things. But... And it's not even as if sound was a new concept at that point. So, But I think it's showing something that um, that most people wouldn't necessarily yeah. be aware of. How, how, how does this work? How do yeah. they have the sound on the film? Well, I've seen... How do, how do they turn a picture into, into noise? Yeah. Well, I've, I've kind of seen optical soundtracks and I can't get my head around how it works. <laughs> you shine a light through it and noise comes out. Okay, it's fine magic. <laughs> the first segment of the second half is Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. Oh, yes, more frolicking. There's a lot of frolicking here. Um, and in fact, Taylor starts by introducing, by, by explaining the plot of the mm. section in detail and referring to the centerettes. Oh, that's For which right. my response was, no. <laughs> it's, yes, it, I think... Previously, he's kind of given you a bit of an idea, but no, he does very much go through this one, and this happens, and this happens. And yes. I think it's almost in this case, it is like the this kind of the introductions you get on, as you say, on Radio Three or something, where they will be, they will be broadcasting an opera, and somebody will pop up at the start of each act and tell you the plot of the act. Yes, I don't like that. That's mm. what the, that's what the programs for. Well, yeah. um, the correct term should be centerides. 
Oh. Female centaurs. I'm happy to go along with you on that one. Uh, the sequence opens with a beautiful country scene with lots of baby unicorns and fawns frolicking about and playing hide and seek. Oh, yeah, that's right. While the pegasuses are in their nests. Yeah, and this was the part, whole sequence that hurt my logic circuits. <laughs> <laughs> because just because Pegasus is a horse with wings, it doesn't nest in a tray. <laughs> and then the bit later on when it goes and lands on the water and starts swimming around like a swan, I just... Uh, <laughs> it bothered me. There is an assumption of... Uh, knowledge among the audience of Greek myths. Yeah, I suppose it, it's quite a casual assumption that yes, everybody knows what all these things are and what's going on. Mm. So uh, Dionysus is introduced and it's just assumed, oh yeah, you'll know who that is. Oh yes, yeah. Um, which I think reinforces my thesis that this is not a film for children. Mm. No, that's true. Well, but the trouble is as well, and you, you're back to the thing of not wanting to shock the horses, but... It's a very, very sedate Bacchanalian orgy, isn't it? It very much so. I mean, Dionysus. Oh, no, it would be, it's Bacchus, isn't it? Not Dionysus. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, hang on. I'm confusing myself now. Yes, it is Bacchus. Of course it is. Um, one of them is Greek and one of them is Roman. I'm assuming Dionysus is Roman then. Yes. Well, Bacchus is, um, he's basically W.C. Fields, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he is, isn't it? In a toga, um, being um, attended to by his zebra handmaidens, question mark. <laughs> <clears throat> um, and uh, the, uh, the little baby Pegasuses are given a flying lesson, they're, they're very graceful. Yeah. Um, and there's a, as you say again, it's been Disneyed up a bit. So the the adult centre, adult centre, adult Pegasuses are all very serious. And then there's a adorable baby Pegasus. Yes, a little Blackie, uh, getting up to all sorts of mischief mm. because he's black. Um, meanwhile, there are some beautiful naked bathing women. But yes, it, but it turns out they've got horse bodies. Yes, and. Not wanting to, they are in the long shots, they are topless, aren't they? Yep, yeah, I thought so. U rated film, um, and they have their hair done and their makeup done in very 40s styles, and yeah. they're being attended to by cherubs, um, and set up by cherubs on dates as well. In the original uncut version, they also had their hooves shined by a black centaur, yes, and there's a bit, there's a a couple of interesting clips on YouTube that kind of show how Disney edited out the contentious material. And there's a bit where Bacchus is approaching his throne and the carpet kind of unrolls by magic. And in the uncensored version, the uh, African-American centre is, push yeah, is pushing the carpet along. But the weird thing is that when that character is erased, it still works because it just looks... Mythological, you know, yeah. it's a carpet that suddenly it's unrolling all by itself. There are various manly centaurs there as well, back from playing a, a football game. And um, there's even more frolicking. Yeah, yeah. With, with, with dancing and romance as the various centaurs start pairing off and the cherubs and making sure they will have a lovely time. Yeah, and they they spot a they spot one they spot a, a 
a lady centaur that is all by herself and looking sad and a man centaur that's all and yeah they match them up and then Zeus comes along to spoil the pot yeah I mean how do they know that those two are just gay it was it's the, Greece they invented it yeah that's true it was the 1940s nobody was gay um yeah and then and then um Vulcan hmm Vulcan no Zeus Vulcan's the one no Hephaestus is the winds Vulcan's the one who fires all the lightning bolts who who makes the lightning bolts there I thought Vulcan was Roman again it says Vulcan here oh I'm so confused Jupiter Jupiter's the Roman king of the gods yes but I thought Vulcan because sorry uh, Vulcan lived under Volcano the volcano in Italy, and it was him hammering on his forge that made the volcano erupt. But I'm not sure who the Greek equivalent of... Um, but it does say Vulcan, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it shows what Wikipedia knows. Yeah, it should be Hephaestus. Yes, you're right. I didn't watch Ulysses 31 for nothing. No, they had to pay you. No, <laughs> Yeah, why can't we have uh, like something about Greek mythology involving a little robot? Hmm. Yeah, what was... uh, His I... name was Nono. No, no, sorry, I was st- struck trying to remember what the the little robot owl in Clash of the Titans was called. Was it called like Bobo or something? Bubo. Bubo. You know, like the things you get when you've got the plague. Yes. Um. So they hide in the uh, gazebo as, as it rains and uh, the cherubs draw a veil over the uh, whole thing, these sort of veils across the scene. And mm. one of them peeks through the, the veil oh, that's right, as yes. his bottom turns into the shape of a heart, which is a really weird thing to do. Yes. I must have... I think I might have blinked because I certainly didn't quite pick up on that. That's a very odd way to transition between scenes well well in the next sequence they're all making wine yes and they're just throwing the branches in whole yeah leaves, yeah. leaves and all there's centaurs not centaurs the oh pegasuses no it's the the, the two-legged the like pan there's multiple pans or something are stamping um, down on the grapes and getting goat hairs all over them all fawns? over the wine fawns that's the word i was looking for um and Bacchus arrives on his donkey. Drunk again. Drunk again. And I'm, I do like the moment where he goes right up to the camera and just wiggles his face. <laughs> he, knows he's in a, he knows he's in an animated film. I think he might be the only character that does. It's okay. But uh, he, he's having a lovely time and presides over the, the big party. And uh, soon it starts to rain as mm. Vulcan parts the clouds and he's not pleased with all this carrying on. I suppose he's trying to get to sleep, isn't he? Mm. Th- does this happen with your neighbours? They... Do you throw thunderbolts down at them when you're when all the, all the unicorns and all the pegasuses are keeping you awake? I... Yeah, I suppose I probably should do. He has Vulcan forge some thunderbolts and he throws them down. He's chasing after Bacchus. Yes, he's actually aiming, isn't he? Um, and... Uh, Eventually, uh, he gets tired. He he throws the last couple and winds up just sort of 
dropping one or two out of from where they are in his bed. Which is, of course, a giant cloud, because yeah. that's obviously, as everyone knows, that's where the gods live. And um, it cuts to twilight, and the characters are playing in puddles, gambling across mm. this. And this, this rainbow oh, that's is right. dragged across the sky. Diana um, in her chariot, I think Dean's Taylor tells oh. us, doesn't he? Yes. With the um, characters climbing onto and sliding down the rainbow, uh, all towards an outcrop where we see the chariot of the sun setting. Oh, that's right, yes, Apollo, yeah. And the veil of night settling over the land, and the crescent moon being a bow from which an arrow is fired, sparkling the sky with stars. Mm, yeah, that's it. That's it, yes, it's Diana is at the end, is Diana the Huntress. Um, and uh, the final shot is a, a mirror of the opening of this beautiful countryside now hmm. at, in night time. Which leads into the, the final half hour, with the first segment being the Dance of the Hours. Yeah, which, as I say, was the other, the other bit that um, I remember being sort of cut up and used on TV, and it's the other bit that made me think of something else, because I immediately thought of Camp Granada. You know, hello, mother, hello, father, <laughs> here I am at Camp Granada. The various animals dancing the ballet symbolise the different times of the day. So we have an ostrich for the morning, mm. we have a hippo for the afternoon, Elephants of the evening. Have the ele- is it elephants of the evening? I guess, or the late afternoon. The late afternoon, and then the alligators. And then the alligators of night. And one of them is, I believe, is actually called Alligator. <laughs> it's presumably named by the same person that named Yensid. Mm. Um, I, I found this sequence strangely boring, and I don't really know why. It doesn't really come to life until the alligators turn up. It promises a lot of humour. Yeah. Through having ostriches dressed up as ballerinas, of the, of the hippo having mm. to be very graceful despite being huge and fat. But it never really coalesces into something yeah. that's funny. No, I think that's it. Yeah, you're right. It is that thing. It's, it's, it should be funnier. Um, and whether they're holding back or whether actually they started drawing it and then realised that it just wasn't going to be as funny as they thought. But, as I, as I say, I like the alligators. I actually have only a page and a half of notes on this. There's, oh, yeah. there's, and most of it's just description of what happens. Mm. Um, the ostriches dance in this um, courtyard area and they disappear and eventually the the hippo appears and, and dances and then goes to sleep on her yeah. fainting couch. <laughs> And the elephants blow bubbles and they carry her up into the sky and, and then as night falls, the alligators appear and, yeah. and then it turns into great chaos with all the animals dancing with each other and yes. the alligators being thrown around all over the place and swung and uh, alligators trying to run off with uh, one of the elephants that gets stuck between the collars. It, yes. And um, I, th- I think it ends with... Does it end with one lone hippo still asleep on the fainting couch? I or? think so, yeah. yes. And... Uh, we, we pull back down the corridor we first came down as the door, oh, the door, as the door slam and fall off their hinges. There's not really much to say about that sequence. It's it's not as fun as it should be. No. But it's one of the few... Again, a bit like The Sorcerer's Apprentice, though, it kind of... It's a, 
it's its own little self-contained sequence. I do sometimes wonder whether Walt Disney's backup plan was just that you could snip those bits out and sell them as in, you know, perhaps put them out under the Silly Symphonies brand again. Yes. The final sequence is a medley of yes. uh, Mussorgsky's Night on Bald Mountain and Schubert's Ave Maria. And it starts in almost like the same way that the Pastoral Symphony ends with this nighttime mm. landscape. Um, but we pan up the side of a mountain and, and reveal that the the peak is actually a demon yeah. curled up inside his own wings. Yes, that's right. It's, it, it's, it's Val... Walpurgis Night, I think Deems pronounces it as. Incorrectly. Walpurgis Night. Yeah. Um, And the demon is named Chernobog. Okay. That doesn't sound like anybody's name written backwards. Uh, I'll just check quickly, I don't. No, it is something like that. Um... Um... It's a deity from Slavic mythology. Okay. Uh, officially a pagan god, but may have originated as a representation of Satan. And backwards, it's Gobanrek. Yeah, that doesn't doesn't mean anything. And as fingers of darkness spread over the town, uh, all the the ghouls and ghosts and spectres and spirits are revived. They come to dance for the delight of their... It's great. I really like this sequence. There's there's some real horrible ghoulishness. One part that I noticed is um, ghosts rising from the ground underneath a gibbet. Yes. Floating up through the hangings. Through the noose, yeah. Which I thought, that was a bit strong. I mean, obviously this is about demons and, and horrible monsters, but actually invoking the people who've been hanged in the town... It's, um, a, it's a change in tone, isn't it? But yeah, um, the, it makes me think of Hieronymus Bosch. Yes, and it's, it's I don't don't know a lot about art or animation or anything like this, but this one also at times seems to be animated. <laughs> Thank in, you for coming on the show. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm eminently qualified to sound off for ages, um, but the. It seems it looks to me at times like they're using different techniques to draw some of the figures. Some of them almost look like they're drawn in chalk or something like that. Yes. Just the um, uh, to try and get some different yeah. tones and textures. Because certainly the uh, you know the, the frolicking fairies and things from segment two whose name I've forgotten again the Nutcracker Nutcracker that's it the Nutcracker the Pastoral Symphony the Dance of the they're all pretty much animated in the same style and then suddenly you get to this bit and it looks it just looks different it has a it, it kind of, the, the, the artwork itself sort of has a different texture or something like that it looks as I say it looks great I wonder how many night kids it gave nightmares to oh it's terrifying it's almost um it's pink elephants on parade levels of scary, isn't it? But that's just meant to be a kind of crazy, mm. uh, wacky interlude. But here it's the devil yes. having a party. Yeah. And there's all kinds of, sort of crazy stuff going on and people being thrown into hell and yeah. whatnot. And then towards the end, a bell chimes. Yes. 
and it brings Chernobog up short and all the the uh, the imps and, and goblins and whatnot go back to their little hovels. Satan closes himself back into his wings and the image fades to a misty glen with mm. lights on the riverside and in morning fog as monks walk walk towards a ruined cathedral. And the, this ending part, I think, is the most beautiful in its design. Yeah, it, as I say, this is the point when I just sound like a Philistine. It looks lovely. I just, again, my interest level depends on what, effectively, what music is being played. I find Ave Maria a very, very slow and boring piece of music. So I, as much as the last bit looks lovely, I found it very slow and boring. It's the shortest musical segment of the yeah, whole I film. I still found it slow and boring. Oh. Um, they, uh, they walk among tall trees and the images turn into stained glass um, with a corridor of light um, as night turns into day. And I noticed that the lyrics of Ave Maria are actually sung in English. Uh, possibly, I, well, they, again, they are. I'm fi- I'm finishing off Fantasia like I began by saying I wasn't paying enough attention to notice. <laughs> and uh, the image turns to the the colours of the the dawn sky mm. as the music swells to a climax. We fade out, and the disc resets to the main menu. Yeah, it's a little bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think it's an amazing experiment yeah and i think it's largely a successful one but it is ultimately the most ambitious and biggest budgeted experimental film of all time yeah and whether or not it plays well with an audience is tricky to gauge because it's so different from anything else there is no other film like fantasia no others have tried to copy it like the ones i mentioned earlier but something that devotes this amount of time and craft to a totally original use of the medium. Um, it's pretty much unprecedented. Yeah. And it was an accident of circumstances that it wasn't... As, it was reasonably successful. It wasn't as successful as, successful as they hoped, was it? Be- because they couldn't release it in Europe. Exactly, for reasons, yeah. Um, it had a long run as a... Um, a uh, a special presentation in, in I think, New York and Los mm. Angeles. It went on general release as a B picture and was re-released several times with uh, segments cut. The Deems Taylor sequences were cut down eventually to nothing at all. Oh, right. So it was just a bunch of uh, segments. And they did, I think, eventually they tagged on some opening and closing credits. Yeah. Um, certainly I remember watching it once with a set of closing credits. Um, and it's only really after its 50th anniversary re-release, where it was actually treated as a serious work. Yeah. Um, and so much of it has been sort of used in other material. Yes. I mean, the Sorcerer's Apprentice has been turned into a separate film. There's been talk of turning Night on Bald Mountain into a separate film. Um, the Dance of the Hour sequence is, is yeah. so well remembered. Um, it's been massively influential in its own way. Um, and I find it far more interesting than almost anything Disney has ever done. Yes. Apart from Tron Legacy. Well, they had a... You were honestly Tron Legacy. <laughs> um, they, 
they had a for after a while they had a formula and they knew that if you make a film like Snow White, it will make money. And even then, some of the some of the animated films didn't make as much money as they were hoping, did they? I think, no, I think Alice, Alice in Wonderland was Alice in Wonderland didn't do too well. Sleeping Beauty in the early fifties was a was a comeback picture mm. because they'd spent most of the war years making um, short features or package movies. Yeah, um, and that was a comeback, and then that was followed by Cinderella, and then Alice in Wonderland was struggled. Yeah, and it, and then sort of as they went into the sixties, it was you know one hundred and one Dalmatians, and you know yeah, that was the first sort of contemporary story they'd done. I think it was the first animated film that's got a car in it. <laughs> um, but there is this vague sense that if it had been more successful, in line with what they the business they were obviously hoping it would do, that yes, maybe animation would have been an entirely different genre. But as, as it is, yeah, Disney kind of fell back on formula a bit more. Then. His hope was that the film could be re-released every few years with new segments. Yeah, that sense. some would be retired, perhaps just temporarily, and mm. new sequences would be added in to create a different experience for the viewer every time. In an odd sort of way, that idea matches what the way that Disney treats its films anyway. Because they went through a phase, didn't they, where... They were, certain animated films would be unavailable, and then they, suddenly it would be all. Oh, now you've got a chance to get such and such on video or on DVD, and yeah, you can almost see the history of Fantasia being. Now you've got a chance to see Fantasia with the Sorcerer's Apprentice again, as it used to be. Yeah, it would have. And that was now with an all new sequence of Claire de Lune, which is yeah. one they originally thought about doing, oh, or, right. or the Firebird, or. Um, Rhapsody in Blue yes. they used in Fantasia 2000 which I haven't seen unfortunately no I, re I, I remember it coming out but as I say I think I can only assume that Fantasia 2000 came out not long after my initial uninteresting uh, viewing of, of Fantasia for the first time so I had no interest in going to see two, the 2000 version well it's significantly shorter it's only about mm. a quarter and it has only about I think five or six segments um, but I mentioned it in, in seeing it and you mentioned Salvador Dali earlier there was a plan for a Salvador Dali segment um, <laughs> which wound up evolving into a completely separate short film called uh, Destino okay um, so I would recommend Fantasia as I wouldn't recommend it as a a feature film it's a piece of art it's a piece of history of a, a path not taken in animation and had it been successful it could have completely changed the, the entire cinematic landscape Disney could have gone in a totally different direction who knows where that story would have ended thanks to Chris for making time for this recording Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, with more than 60 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on Twitter, at Cinema underscore Limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. However, until next time... Oh yeah! You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, Hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. 
Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.